Cyprian was a bishop in the third century in uh, Carthage, Tunisia. Tunisia is a small country on, in northern Africa. And not long after he became, uh, or he was elected as bishop in Carthage, Christians began to experience persecution in northern Africa and all over the Roman Empire as uh, Emperor Decius began what is now known as the Decian Persecution. Uh, about six years after this wave of persecution, another wave of persecution broke out against Christians uh, under Emperor Valerian. Now, Cyprian led his church to stay faithful to God, though he himself refused to sacrifice, often very publicly, because he was a well-known figure. They would try to get him to publicly sacrifice to the pagan gods and re uh, recant his Christian faith. But he, uh, throughout his life, often would refuse to do this, and he continued to firmly profess Christ. This, of course, led to his uh, years of being banished and ultimately his public execution. After receiving his sentence and being told that he would be made an example of to other Christians and publicly executed, his response was, thanks be to God. In one of his writings, Cyprian wrote to a friend and he said the following. He wrote to a friend named Donatus and he said, it really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatists, are the Christians, and I am one of them. In our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to see the Apostle Paul kind of doing the same thing that Cyprian did, giving thanks to God, praying with joy, expressing confidence in the work of God, all while sitting in a Roman prison. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that type of joy. Spirit-given, joy-filled confidence is not rooted in our earthly security. It's not rooted in the tangible things that we can put our hands on. We typically will find our happiness or confidence when we have a lot of money or when life is going easy or when we're able to control our circumstances so that our life can be comfortable. But as we saw last week, that's not the context of Philippians. Paul is at the tail end of his ministry and he isn't retiring off to some tropical island to enjoy his twilight years because <laughs> he planted a bunch of churches and wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament. That's what we would have wanted for him, but that wasn't how Paul was ending his life. He's sitting in a Roman prison. Not, an act, not exactly an ideal situation for comfort and security. He isn't even able to be physically present with these people that he so wants to be with. But he's filled with thanksgiving, he's filled with confidence, and he is filled with joy. You see, joy despite our circumstances flows from what we saw last week, our union with Christ. This type of joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. We need to know Jesus in order to experience this type of profound joy that we see on display in the Apostle Paul's life here in the book of Philippians. And it's the type of joy that the Holy Spirit calls us to throughout this little book. There has to be this daily communion with Christ in order to experience joy that is deeper and more profound than simple happiness based on circumstances. I mean, there's a difference between happiness because I'm in Disneyland and happiness because I'm in Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Disney. It's amazing. It's a ton of fun. But there comes a moment when you're no longer in Disneyland and you're just left with the realization of how much money you just spent. <laughs> Typically, that's not a happy feeling. Not the happiest place on earth for my budget. <laughs> but here's the truth. We can experience joy because we are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, that is a permanent situation. That is our permanent stance. That is our permanent position. 
Because we are in Christ, we are never out of Christ, and so we are never without reason to experience deep soul-level joy. And as people grow together in this communion in Christ, this isn't a solo thing. This isn't something that we just do only by ourselves. As we grow together in our communion with Christ, we develop this type of joy-giving relationships that we're going to see the Apostle Paul talk about in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And that all grows from the fact that we are saints, that we are together in Christ. And what I love about these verses is we begin to see the close relationship Paul has with this church and how God was using this relationship that Paul has with the Philippian church as a profound source of joy in his life. Last week, we saw the difficult circumstances that led to the birth of this church in Acts 16. And it seems like from the very beginning of those circumstances in Acts 16, there was this permanent bond formed between Paul and this church, and God was using this in Paul's life to bring him joy. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite us all to stand. We're going to read all of Philippians chapter 1, but this morning we will work through verses uh, 3 through 8. And what I hope we'll see this morning is the same way that God was using uh, this church as a source of joy in Paul's life, God wants to use his church as a profound source of joy in our lives as well. Let's read Philippians chapter number 1. I will pray, and then we will work through verses 3 through 8. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number three, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach Christ out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of, of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit would anoint your word to go forward this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would provide comfort for those who need comfort right now. I pray that it would be a festival oil, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Lord, that it would minister to those who come in this morning with heavy hearts. Lord, I also pray that your word would convict us. Show us where we are hiding sin so that it can be confessed and made right. Father, I pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word this morning, we wouldn't think about others, but that we would think about ourselves. Lord, I pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word this morning, your spirit would show us where we are not living in the joy of the Lord, with the joy of the Lord as our strength. I pray that this message would go forth and that it would be your word, not mine, that would minister to people's hearts and minds. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Our first thought this morning is, very simply, joy-giving relationships are built on the gospel of Jesus. Joy-giving relationships are built on the gospel of Jesus. We see this in verses 3, 4, and 5, and we see this in parts of verse number 7 as well. Verses 3, 4, and 5 say, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I love that Paul is sitting in this jail cell in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, but he's still able to talk about what he's thankful for. He's so thankful for this group of people that he's able to lift his eyes from his difficulty and thank God for them. It's so easy when we're going through hard times to become self-absorbed, isn't it? We, we, we go through difficult seasons, we go through suffering, and then all the focus just turns on ourselves. We go into this preservation mode and we become self-absorbed, but what we see here is that the Spirit of God enables us to be thankful for the way God is working in other people. And we know these people weren't perfect. The Apostle Paul addresses that in chapter 4. There's some disunity. He calls some ladies out by name later on in chapter number 4. But he's not letting those problems crush his gratitude. I mean, he's saying, I thank God for every remembrance of you. Do you have people in your life who you're like, I don't know if I could thank God for everything I could remember about them. But the Apostle Paul, as he's filled with the Spirit, sitting in this jail cell, writing this letter to them, he's like, I thank God for every remembrance of you, always praying with what? With joy. 
None of us want to be in the situation we're in. None of us want to go through hard times. But the way that we as a church are coming together right now is going to produce genuine thanksgiving to God for each other. As time goes on, we're going to be able to begin thanking God for the specific things that he's doing in our lives right now. And yes, it's painful. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But there's going to be a moment where we can look back and be like, man, look what God did in that person's life. And look what God did in this person's life. And it's going to, like it is for the Apostle Paul, fill us with joy and fill us with thanksgiving so that we can just have our own little praise service no matter what we're going through because of the way the Spirit of God is working through his church. Now, I know this part of Philippians, it feels like it's just this usual greeting. And when we read it, it's, it's like we just kind of go, we go on autopilot, we kind of skip over it. But when we think through the context of what is going on in Paul's life, it paints a picture of what the church can be in our lives. It shows us that the relationships we have with other believers are not meant to be idolized, but they are meant to be a source of thanksgiving because every believer is an individual that God is at work in. If somebody is in Christ, God is trying to work in them. And because of that, we can look around the room and we can thank God for each other. I'm sure not every memory of Paul's about the beginning of this church was a happy one. I mean, like we saw last week, getting illegally beaten and thrown into prison without a trial is not something that we're just going to be so excited about. But the beauty is Paul didn't let the bad keep him from giving thanks for the good work God was doing through those circumstances. And what's amazing is, as you look at what the apostle often says he's thankful for, it's often the work God is doing in people. It's often the work that God is doing in people's lives. So let me encourage you. Take some time to reflect on your own journey that God has brought you on. Yes, there's pain. But think about how God has faithfully gotten you through that pain. Think about how God has brought you and carried you on in his loving faithfulness. Think about the work that God has done in your life. Think about the people that God has used in your life to accomplish this work. Take some time this week to thank God for the people you're sitting in this room with this morning and the impact that they've had on you. And as you do, watch as the Holy Spirit of God fills your heart with thanksgiving and joy. Paul says in verse 4 that he joyfully prays for them in his every prayer. He's so full of triumphant joy that just the very thought of this church causes him to have his own little praise and thanksgiving time. His own little Thanksgiving service as he's sitting chained to a Roman guard. Such joy is the fruit of the Spirit that only God can produce. But it's also not this elusive thing that only elite Christians like the Apostle Paul can experience. It's not a feeling that's dependent on favorable circumstances. It runs so much deeper. It rests on our unchanging relationship with God. Spiritual joy is not an emotional response dependent on chance or circumstance. It's this deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in my life, there's no, everything is good between me and God because I am in Christ. And because I am in Christ, I can have this deep, abiding, joy-filled confidence. Joy is not an emotional response. Joy is an attitude that we can choose. That's why it can be and is throughout the book of Philippians commanded. To not live in joy is to live in disobedience. Now, that's a hard word for me because I'm like, oh, that's convicting. But the truth is, it's an attitude that we can choose because we are in Christ. The source of joy is outside itself. It's in Christ. That's why it can be commanded, because we are in him. God commands us to be joyful because he equips us and he empowers us to be joyful. 
And he gives us this joy through his Holy Spirit, through his word and through his body, the church. What Paul does with this early note of joy in this book, and he echoes it throughout the book, is he assures his friends who are burdened by his imprisonment that being in prison has not robbed him of his joy. Because even though he's in prison, he's in Christ. Now, the book of Philippians isn't simply about joy. It's also about fearlessly advancing the gospel with joy. It's about working together as a family in hardship to advance the kingdom of God. The fact that we are in Christ provided, the fact that they were in Christ provided uh, for their fellowship. It gave them a unity and an other's focus that directed them away from their self-interest and towards the interest of their fellowship or their partnership. The word that's used to describe this in verse 5 is translated partnership. We read that just a moment ago. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word partnership is probably more literally translated participation. This was something that they were doing together. It's most often translated in the New Testament as fellowship. So you could say it like this. It's friendship on a mission. And I'm working really hard not to make a Lord of the Rings reference right now. But the first book is called The Fellowship of the Ring. Come on. So when we see, as a church, when we see a church come together and lock arms with each other to advance the kingdom of God, our relationships become this wellspring of God-given joy because we're not hung up on ourselves. It's not about us. It's about, hey, we're going to come together in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to fearlessly partner together to advance the kingdom of God. We're going to fearlessly fellowship together so that the glory of God can go forward in our city and around the world. And we see how deeply this was rooted in verse 7 because he says, you were partners with me in grace. Grace was their rooting. Grace was their foundation. And he says, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Partners there in verse 7. It's the same root word in Greek here that we see for fellowship. This partnering, this fellowship, this coming together drove them into sacrificial action for God. This wasn't simply having a good time because our sports team is doing well. They were working together, suffering together, striving together to advance the gospel. This grace mentioned here in verse 7 is not just saving grace, it's also suffering grace. We can suffer together to advance the gospel. Paul's saying, you're, you're, you're partnering with me, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. You guys are with me in this thing. So it's suffering grace. It's grace to sacrifice for the advance of the gospel. It's grace so we can struggle for the sake of the gospel so the whole world can know that there is a God in heaven who loves them and who died for them. The way God uses his grace to produce this type of fellowship, Paul says, was sustaining their affections in verse 7. Even though Paul is literally chained to a Roman guard, his heart could rejoice because of this joy-giving relationship that was built on the gospel of Jesus. He thought of them, and he thought of the camaraderie. He thought of what they went through in Acts 16. He thought of all that was God was doing in their lives and how they were coming together to advance the kingdom of God. And so can we. We can experience this joy-giving relationships because we are together in Christ. And as we seek to advance his kingdom, the church becomes this wellspring of joy in our hearts and in our lives. Joy-giving relationships are built on the gospel of Jesus. But we also see in verse number six, confidence comes from our security in Jesus. Look at verse number six. I am sure of this. 
I am confident, Paul is saying, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can have joy-filled confidence. Amen. We can have joy-filled confidence despite our circumstances because of the work of God in our lives. The work that God began, for some of these people, all the way back in Acts 16, God was going to finish. God was the one that was going to carry them on to completion to that final day when they stand before Jesus Christ. And so Paul is encouraging this church, and through the Holy Spirit, we are also being encouraged that we will be preserved to the end because we are in Christ. Pastor Steve Lawson said, salvation is not by human achievement, but by the divine accomplishment through the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Because Jesus has begun this good work in us, because God has begun this good work in us, we can rest assured that he will complete it. You can be as certain of heaven as if you've already been there for hundreds of years. Our security in Christ is what produces confident joy. Now, how do we grow in confident joy? Like, we know it. We know we can have it. We, 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 we understand that. But oftentimes, we don't experience it. Well, first of all, we just continually place our trust in God. Every day, God, I trust in you. God, this isn't about me. God, I can't do this on my own. We consistently and continually place our trust in God. Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8. The Bible says, some take pride in chariots, others in horses, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand firm. I love those verses in Psalm 20. We rise and stand firm, not because we're great, not because we trust in ourselves, but because we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When we place our confidence in what God is doing instead of what man is doing, we can stand firm in the battles that we face. We know we can be victorious because we are in Christ and he is the one that gives us the strength. This means every day we get up and we we adapt a heart posture that's dependent on God. Every day we get up and say, God, I can't, but you can. So by faith, I will in the power of your Holy Spirit. Even if we aren't doing something that's outside of our comfort zone, even if we're doing something that feels mundane, we don't place our trust in those earthly things. We place our trust in God, not in ourselves. I love the encouragement the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 35, 36, and 37. He says, so don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. God will reward faithfulness to him. And so the writer of Hebrew encourages us, almost warns us, not to throw away our confidence because we need endurance. And it's that confidence in the work of Christ that enables us to endure through hardship. It's that confidence in the work of Christ that enables us to be faithful to the point of death. So when we stand before God, we will have been faithful. It's confidence in God's continued work that's what enables us to endure. Yes, life is hard, but you can live with confident joy because God is going to finish what he started in you. God is going to finish what he started in you. And I know right now we're in a season where we're trying to figure out what's up and what's down, what was real, what wasn't, but I can say this with all confidence and assurance that whatever God started in your life, he will finish it. God is going to finish what he started with this church. God started this good work the moment we received justification by faith. That's the beginning of the work in Philippians 6. 
And by his grace and through his Holy Spirit, he is carrying it on through our sanctification. We need his power of his spirit. We need his grace so that we can live a holy life and continue on in sanctification. But God is the one that carries us through that. Every hardship, every difficulty, every test of faith is an opportunity for us to surrender to the Holy Spirit and allow him to carry on this good work that he started, that he will complete the moment we stand before Jesus and receive our full inheritance. That's glorification. So here in this one little verse, in this one little sentence, we see the entire work of salvation unfold. Our justification, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification. And we see God is the one that carries us through all of that. And because God is the one that is carrying us through all of that, we can have confidence, church. We can stand firm and stand in the day of battle, like Psalm 20 says. We can be still and know that I am God because God is the one that is fighting for us. This is all the work of God. I mean, all of us have started on a project with all the zeal that we could muster, right? Normally, it's these DIY projects. We see it on Chip and Joanna Gaines, and we think, oh, I'm going to do that, right? And then halfway through it, we're like, nope, that ain't happening. We all have projects that we start on really excited and that, that just kind of fizzle. If you've been in my house, you'll see this little square patch in my ceiling and over my dining room table where there's an unfinished project. The truth is, oh, God's not like us. God doesn't get tired of a project and peter out on it. His zeal to complete the work will not fade. And we experience this by every day just placing our dependence on him. God, I'm trusting you to get me through today. God, I'm trusting in you to do what's right today. God, I've got some difficult choices to make. I'm trusting you to guide me. God, I'm tempted with the sin. I'm trusting you to enable my obedience to say no to that sin and say yes to righteousness. God, I'm trusting in you today to raise my children, to change dirty diapers. Whatever it is that God has called you to, trust in God to carry on and do that good work through you. Psalm 73, 24 says, you guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me up in glory. God is the one that is guiding us. And afterwards, we're gonna be in glory with him. That's good news. That's confidence building news. That is a sure promise. The word of God breaks through the fog of confusion that we're facing like a light in the darkness and gives us sure ground to stand on. So there's a lot of things I don't know about. Me too. But I know this. God finishes what he started. God finishes what he started. And because of that, we can live with confidence. Kent Hughes is the former senior pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, he's an author of numerous books. Many of you have probably read his best-selling book, Disciplines of a Godly Man. It's a fantastic book. Uh, in his commentary on Philippians 1.6, he said this. He says, as I reflect on my 50-plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It, it is not my grip on God that made the difference, but his grip on me. I'm not confident in my goodness. I'm not confident in my character. I'm not confident in my history. I'm not confident in my reverend persona. I'm not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. We experience joy-filled confidence as we regularly place our trust and confidence in him. And we also grow in confidence as we see the fruit of his work in our lives. When God does the work of salvation, as we see God carrying out verse, verse number six, there will be Evidence, there will be fruit. As God carries on the work of sanctification in our lives, people, we will bear fruit. 
the demonstration of a life of faithfulness. This is what Paul says in verse 7. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense of the gospel. Their partnership was an observable fruit of the work of God. It was an observable fruit to God working in their lives. All the things that Paul commends this church for are fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so as we look around and as we see these evidences of grace, as we see marks of growth, as we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, those can produce confidence. Because we know, look what God is doing. We have tangible evidence that we can point to and say, this was of God. And so we can experience joy-filled confidence. I love uh, 3 John, verse number 4. It says, I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Seeing the fruit of God working in your life produces confidence. It produces joy because it reinforces that God is working. Later in, the, uh, later in Philippians, Paul tells the church in chapter 2, verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Having assurance of salvation does not lead to idleness. It does not lead to apathy. Having assurance of our salvation leads to growth. It leads to joy-filled obedience. It leads to perseverance and endurance. Knowing God is going to finish what he started produces faith to live a holy life. Because I know I'm not on my own. I've got the Holy Spirit of God working in me. How could I be anything but joyfully confident? How could I do anything but live a holy life? It produces faith to live in such a way that advances the kingdom of God because we're reminded that we are co-laborers together with God. God didn't just justify us and then leave us on our own to, to figure out his mission. He says, no, you've got my Holy Spirit working inside of you. And because of that, because I'm commanding you to work out your salvation, I am here with you every step of the way. And so we can confidently and joyfully follow after God because he is with us. So as we surrender to the work that God is doing, he produces fruit in our lives, which brings confidence not in ourselves. Not in ourselves. Because apart from him in us dwells no good thing. We know this isn't about us. This isn't confidence in our skills. This is confidence in God. And as Paul looked around at this church and he saw fruit after fruit after fruit after fruit, it produced this joy-filled thanksgiving to God in his life, this confidence. I can say this. This is right for me to say because God is at work. Many of us can look back over the course of our lives and see God's faithfulness over and over and over again. We can see God working in our hearts and through our lives. We've had those experiences that were undeniably the Holy Spirit of God working through us. And it's amazing because it doesn't produce an ounce of pride because we're like, uh, what just happened? <laughs> it was all the Holy Spirit working through us. That is what Paul is expressing as he hears about this church from Epaphroditus. And so as we look around at the work of God in our lives, we too will experience joy-filled confidence. So we've seen how joy-giving relationships are built on the gospel of Jesus. We've seen that confidence comes from our security in Jesus. And lastly, we see affection comes from the heart of Jesus. Affection for each other. Giving ourselves to theology, to the apostles' doctrine, and disciplines are a vital part of living out our faith. We cannot, we cannot not do that. 
We cannot separate ourselves from that. It is a vital component to our faith, but it's also vital that there is an affection for God that overflows into an affection for God's people. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. Notice the, 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 the heart affectionate language. I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul isn't simply being overly emotional here. Like if you're like me, you're not often emotionally expressive. We, we, the picture we get of Paul throughout the New Testament is not a sappy guy, right? So he's not being overly emotional here. He's not exaggerating to prove a point. He even goes so far as to say at the beginning of verse 8, God is my witness. Like he wants this church to know this affection is 100% real and genuine. He's not messing around here. He's not just saying nice words to make them feel better. This is something that he means. That's why he can say, and Paul rarely says something like this, for God is my witness. He's like, I know this might be misconstrued. I know you might not believe this, but this is 100% real. Paul isn't being overly sentimental. He genuinely delights in his, in his friends at Philippi. So much so that in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering in the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Paul's like, I love you so much that I will willingly pour out my life for you if it's going to help your faith. Paul modeled this by willingly giving himself for this church. The church modeled it back towards Paul by sacrificing to provide for his financial needs. That's what Epaphroditus was doing. He was bringing him a love offering from the church. And they were standing with him while he was suffering. It's this mutual sacrificial love that we see between Paul and this church. Paul and the Philippians demonstrate what it means to sacrificially love each other. And in verse 8, Paul again reminds us the source of this affection. He says, I deeply miss you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Sacrificial affection flows from the heart of Jesus through his body, the church. The word for affection here is literally translated as bowels or intestines. It's kind of gross to talk about in church on a Sunday. That's what the word means. Uh, it was a metaphor. They would use it as a metaphor for like the innermost part of your being. In Greek culture, it was used to describe more violent passions, such as hatred or love. But in Hebrew culture, it was used to describe uh, the place of tender affection, such as kindness or benevolence or compassion. And so the point Paul is driving home here when he uses this word is he's saying, I love you so much, I literally feel it in the deepest part of who I am. This isn't just an emotional thing. He's like, I feel, you know that feeling when you miss somebody so bad, you just feel it in your gut. And whether it's hurt or whether it's love, whatever it is, you just feel it on a physical level deep inside of you. That's what Paul is communicating here when he uses this word. It's the love of Jesus shining through Paul. And as we church grow in our affection for each other and the Lord, first and foremost, for the Lord, that affection and that love will shine through his body, the church. And we'll be able to echo what Paul is saying to this Philippian church here. This type of God-given love and affection. So in conclusion, as we consider Paul's relationship with this church and the profound source of joy that it was, 
I want us to, first and foremost, look to Christ as the giver of this joy. Take your eyes off your problems. Take your eyes off your circumstances. Take your eyes off of people. Take your eyes off of everything that wants to distract you and put your eyes on the giver of this joy, Christ. Focus on him. Because you are in Christ, he is at work in you, and you can live with humble, confident joy. It's available to you. And then I also want you to look around the room. See the work of God in people's lives. Our flesh wants to look around the room and say, look at that problem, look at that problem, look at that problem. Well, I know what they did, and, and man, if they would have just smiled at me, and man, they're so mean to me. But no, 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 just, just stop. Because as you look to Christ and let his love and affection flow through you, what's going to happen is you're going to look around the room and you're going to see, look how God's working there. Look how God's working there. Look what God did in that person's life. Look at how this person is ministering to me. Look at how I got to minister to that person all through the power of the Holy Spirit. So look around the room, see the work of God in people's life and in your life, and let that produce confidence in your heart that says, no, I'm not alone. God is real. Look at what he's doing in this group of people. Many of us have sacrificed so that the gospel could go forward in our little corner of Fresno. Let the affection of Christ fill your heart and flow through you to the people that you're sitting with here this morning. Let it flow through you to the people who don't know Jesus, who God wants to start that good work in so he can carry them on to completion. The suffering we are called to is a tool of God to produce deeper levels of joy for the glory of his name. Sometimes we'll say things like, well, I don't know why there's suffering in this world. We're going to get there in the book of Philippians. It tells us so that you can know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his what? Suffering. That's a hard truth. That's one I've wrestled a lot with these past few weeks. But it is the truth that this is a tool God uses to produce deeper levels of joy for the glory of his name. Not for our own emotional benefit, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but for the glory of his name. And through it all, we can be confident because God will carry us through and he will finish what he started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you carry us. Lord, we thank you for the way that you're working in us and we thank you for the way that you're working in us collectively as a body. Lord, this church is family. The church is family. And so, Lord, we just want to publicly thank you and give you praise and glory for what you're doing in our lives. We're so undeserving. But you are so good. And so I pray that as we leave here this morning that we would go in your grace and your peace and in your strength and we would fearlessly and confidently live our lives for your glory. Lord, I pray that we would experience this deep, profound source of joy that Paul's experiencing. We ask this in your name. Amen.